This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you their reporting and the stories behind the coverage as the Montana State Legislature meets in an unprecedented session. Today I'm here with uh, Holly Michaels, Tom Kuglin, and Seaborn Larson of the Montana State News Bureau. Uh, Seaborn, you've been um, tracking some legislation that will change the way the executive branch uh, handles appointments. Can you run through that for us? Yeah, um, there's a really interesting bill coming up next week. Uh, it's Senate Bill 140 that would essentially give the governor direct appointment power over state district court and Supreme Court judges. Um, the bill would actually reverse about 50 years of uh, precedent that this commission's been working on. Um, it actually was established, a quick history lesson here, it was established back in 1973 with that legislature um, was trying to set up a system that had been um, kind of left open by the formation of the 1972 Constitutional Convention. You know, um, if you know Montana history well enough, you know that Montana had a long history of uh, sort of special interests tainting the state government at, at all sorts of levels. And so the 1972 Constitution had set out a process to say that the um, the governor will nominate a replacement from the nominees selected uh, in a manner that is provided in state law. And so um, in 1973, the legislature was uh, dominated by Democrats at the time. They had a Democratic governor and um, they enacted the commission to essentially um, take applicants, vet these applicants, and then provide a set of nominees to the governor. That commission uh, today is made up of four lay people, two attorneys and a judge. Um, and uh, I've actually covered this process a couple times in Missoula and uh, back in Great Falls. And so um, it's an interesting process. I think there's, there's a lot of um, hard questions being thrown around. The interviews are held in public. And so when these um, applicants are selected uh, and appointed by the governor, then those judges still have to run for election uh, next cycle. And so the, the people still kind of get their, their input on that. So why is Gene Forte trying to do this? When, so when we asked about the, um, the reason this bill was, was coming forward, they uh, pointed to the constitutional language that um, like I said, said the governor shall nominate a replacement from the nominees selected in a manner sele- uh, provided by state law. And so the um, the Constitution did leave it up to the legislature to decide how this was going to go. And so um, while this bill is being brought by the legislature, we do know that the governor's office is pushing for this. Lieutenant Governor Kristen Juris um, helped write the bill. She's going to testify in support of it next week. And so the um, kind of the the interest here is is why this commission was set up is to is to kind of create that separation of powers. Um, and so back in 1973, 
uh, Republicans at the time didn't think the, the legislature had gone far enough in making this commission uh, because the governor still appoints four members of that board. That's the majority. And so um, as long as uh, that commission exists, there's still um, judges and, and people in the judicial branch who um, who act as something of a buffer to, to keep the, the governor from appointing whoever they want as judges on the state court and the state Supreme Court. There's actually a really good um, article by professor at the University of Montana named Anthony Johnstone. He's a constitutional law professor at the law school there. And so, and he pointed out that the, you know, the constitution had kind of left this open. It was this problem that the, the constitution didn't, the constitutional convention didn't really fix, um, but left it up to be um, adjusted by the legislature. And I talked to Anthony Johnstone and he said that this commission has been adjusted um, time after time, but uh, that the decision to eliminate that commission kind of goes against what the what the legislature had hoped to accomplish back in 73. You know, the governor's office is going to be supporting this bill. And uh, we know that the Montana State Bar um, is going to be opposing it. I talked to John Mudd, who's the executive director, and he said they're going to oppose it because um, it essentially takes away the public or not the public input, but the um, the input from the judiciary in this process. And so I think um, I think it's going to be an interesting bill to watch. It certainly um, adds power to the executive to be able to point, um, to point judges to the benches. And like Anthony Johnstone told me, you know, these judges that are appointed, even though they still have to be elected in the next cycle, you know, being appointed by a governor does create some staying power for judges. They typically tend to win re-election. There's the incumbent um, kind of power that comes through in elections. And so I think this is going to be really interesting just to see how um, the governor's office here adjusts this appointment process or how the legislature feels about it. Uh, when do we see this bill hit the light of day, Seaborn? So it looks like this bill is scheduled for February 9th in front of the Senate Judiciary Hearing Committee. So um, that's just one bill, actually, in this legislature that we're going to see where the the governor's office is working to expand its appointment power um, across different areas of state government. Yeah, there's a couple other places where the governor's office is looking at changing how appointments work too. Um, one of them we're seeing is making deputy directors at agencies appointed positions. Those aren't right now. Well, the governor can appoint who heads the agencies. Those positions are just hired like other employees across state government. We asked the governor's office why they're the people who requested this bill. And we asked why they wanted to see that. And they pointed out that the State Public Service Commission can appoint their own staff and that Gianforte thinks that department directors should have the same ability. I talked to some folks who are a little concerned about the idea. They pointed out that deputy directors sort of stick with agencies, especially through transition of administrations. And they're the ones who really know, you know some of these agencies are really complex and really big and they know how they work and what's going on and is a really good resource to have around. So... That'll be another interesting one. We're also seeing the Senate is rejecting almost all of the interim board appointments made by former Democratic Governor Steve Bullock and then letting Gianforte put in his own appointments, which 
is something that is you know, very much allowed under the process, but wasn't how it was handled the last time. And this was over 16 years ago. Now we had the transition between former Republican Governor Judy Martz to Brian Schweitzer, Democrat. Schweitzer just took most of Martz's appointments and allowed them to um, get approved by the Senate and keep going. So something interesting there too, but the judicial stuff is going to be pretty interesting to see how that turns out. Thanks, Holly. Uh, Tom, you've recently reported on a couple of bills that drew uh, quite a bit of testimony. Let's start with the wolf snaring bill that was heard in House Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Committee. Sure, Tom. So this is this is going to be another one of those bills that sees a lot of um, interest. They're always high profile when you're dealing with, with both either trapping or wolves. So um, obviously a lot of testimony in this one. And actually um, the way it worked out uh, over a dozen opponents to the bill, um, they set a, a sort of a time parameter and they ran out of time. So they were, they were only allowed to give their um, um, yay or nay and, and say whether they support the bill and who they're affiliated with. Um, well, what what does the bill do? Um, how does it change wolf trapping regulations already in place in the state? Sure, yeah, let's let's start with that. So, um, wolves in Montana are classified as a species in need of management. Um, they're primarily um, uh, managed uh, by Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks under the authority of the Montana Fish and Wildlife Commission. Um, Within that authority, there is both a hunting and a trapping season for wolves. Um, however, the trapping season, unlike some other states, is limited to what are called foothold traps. Um, those are traps with steel jaws that um, animal steps on it, it um, snaps shut and holds them there. Um, at least that's how they're designed to work. Um, snares, on the other hand, are um, looped metal cables. Um the way they're designed to work is in a lethal manner, which means that um, the animal walks through it, it tightens around their neck and asphyxiates it. Um, that it, it was a big part of this hearing. Um, why um, wolves as opposed to some other animals in Montana um, are regulated differently. Um, snares are allowed for myriad other species, whether that's bobcats, fox, coyotes, beavers, anything like that. So um, Fielder's point in bringing this bill is really that he sees it as a, uh, a management tool for wolves. Um, he comes from Northwest Montana, very thick forests, um, hunting there for wolves would be difficult and has some of the highest wolf numbers in the state. So I, I would imagine proponents for the bill are, uh, you know, trappers and, you know, agricultural interest groups. What, what did proponents have to say? So, uh, proponents were, were, were pretty adamant that um, uh, when it comes to wolves, um, snares are an, an effective type of trap for wolves. Um, not only do um, they sort of leave um, a smaller footprint in the woods, but um, they're quite a bit lighter than foothold traps. They're obviously quite a bit less expensive and they are able to be operational um, sort, of, sort of in freeze and thaw weather or when there's a lot of a uh, lot of snow that covers up foothold traps. So um, one, one person I think that was that was pretty on point on this uh, was a guy named Matt Lumley. He's an officer in both the National and Montana Trappers Association. And he said, you know, uh, this is what he does for a living. And 
really um, snares would be an effective tool, um, but that that comes with a lot of education. Um, you need to know how to set the, these these types of traps because of um, the need to avoid uh, conflict with other um, animals, wild animals, and um, with other you know people out recreating in the forest. And opponents of the bill, um, what did they have to say? So opponents of the bill um, really ranged between, um, you know, trapping opponents, wolf advocates. Um, there was quite a few sort of actually more mainstream um, conservation groups who had some issues with this, um, groups like Montana Audubon. Uh, so the main issues really with, with it were um, questioning whether um, snares are a humane type of trap. Uh, there, there were some issues whether they, they especially for wolves, um, just due to sort of the structure of the animal, thick necks, um, whether they do um, kill an animal very fast. Um, there's also some issues that, that were brought up about what happens if an animal is not caught by the neck. And um, there was a veterinarian on there that, that raised some issues about some possibly some serious injuries that can, that can come up. Um, quite a few opponents felt that um, not only were snares not humane, but that they were... Um, uh, I guess you would say indiscriminate um, that quite a few other animals that were not the intended type of animal that um, trappers were after were caught. And that um, some of those would be domestic dogs who, um, you know, obviously are, are valued members of people's families. And um, whenever that happens, um, you know, can certainly be a, a pretty traumatic experience, I think. Um, so, let me go back to um, what the, why the sponsor brought the bill. It, is, it, is, it to, is it in relation to Montana's big game numbers and how wolves uh, affect those big, name, big game numbers, or is it just to have less wolves on the landscape? Sure. I, I think it's um, a wildlife management was a term that was thrown around a lot. And, you know, I wrote a, a, a kind of big story about this when, um, a lot of these bills came forward and, you know, we published our story, that story got picked up and, um, kind of went national. And, and I think, um, some of the headlines around it were along the lines of, um, you know, Montana lawmakers want to kill more wolves. Um, I think the really important context with that though, is that, um, they are talking about a, trying to come up with a balancing act between predation and undulate numbers, wolf, deer, moose, um, one thing that the committees have requested is sort of what are the big game trends? And, you know, you can look and certainly elk numbers. Um, it's not going to be the highest elk numbers in the state anyway. Um, there's a lot of deer, a lot of white-tailed deer up there. Um, uh, but one thing Fielder keeps bringing up is, is predation on moose um, being one of his biggest concerns. And um, that that's a species that, um, you know, is going to be at lower densities anyway um, in most places. So um, I think, Definitely the committee members and some of us in the media are interested to see sort of what uh, fish, wildlife, and parks biologists really have to say about this. Thanks, Tom. So the other bill um, that you covered has to do with muzzleloaders uh, being used for big game hunting, right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, it's definitely an interesting bill. Um, it's from Representative Caleb Hinkle, who is uh, a Belgrade lawmaker. He's a Republican. Um, what this bill would do is mandate a traditional muzzleloader heritage hunt. Um, it would take place um, nine days and sort of be scheduled after the end of big game season. 
Um, what Hinkle's thinking here is that uh, the the sort of art of using traditional muzzle loaders, and what we're talking about here is like flint lock, percussion cap. We're not talking about um, scoped rifle barrel muzzle loaders, um, you know, that you can use in other places. Um, this would really be sort of um, sort of harkening back to the to the mountain man frontier day um, type of type of weapon. Um, that would be a nine day hunt be for deer and elk um, take place after the season. Um, it sounds like Hinkle is, is sort of an avid enthusiast of, of these types of weapons and of this time period and um, thinks it'd be a, a good uh, a good deal for for hunters and for keeping this sort of um, he, he, he calls it an art form shooting these weapons alive. So when would the the proposed season lie in relation to our already existing seasons? Okay, so um, the general big game season ends the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Um, this would start the second Saturday after the end of Montana's um, general season and then run for nine days. And proponents of the bill, what did they have to say about it? So, uh, you know, it, it was an interesting uh, mix of proponents. Um, you saw... Um, some groups that are, you know, a lot of times on the same side of an issue split on this, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers came in as a proponent. Um, you know, they said this is a, a really rich history and this is a, a good way to expand opportunities, um, for hunting and traditional weapons. Um, on the other hand, you, you saw groups like the Montana, uh, wildlife federation and the Montana sportsman's Alliance come in, um, there was a little bit of mix of opposition. Um, some of it had to deal with, you know, continuing to hunt later into the year um, when animals are going on to winter range. Um, but then others, um, but their issue was that the legislature is mandating this. Um, a lot of these groups really don't like the idea of the legislature putting into law when hunting seasons are, they think that should be up to the fish and wildlife commission, which, um, you know, really goes through an extensive process to set regulations and seasons. Um, for all types of wildlife. So this is similar to what we talked about last week, where the legislature is trying to legislate um, management um, that some people believe the Fish and Game Commission has authority over. Now, I'd like you to flesh out a little bit more of the opponent's testimony, because there are some parts of the states that we do have late season hunts. I know they're archery hunts, but is there any idea... Uh, is the effectivity of a muzzleloader any more than a bow? Um, and what else did opponents have to say? Sure. So, so that was another big subject. Um, in Montana, any season that you can use a rifle or any other type of firearm, you could use a muzzleloader. Um, that would actually include things like shoulder seasons. So um, currently in, in areas where there are judged to be too many elk, um, they have these private land shoulder season hunts uh, where you can hunt until February 15th, which would obviously be much later than this bill would allow. Um, the thing about this bill though, is it would be open to public land as well. So um, you, you'd be dealing with sort of that dynamic. Um, it sounds like, and I'm not a muzzleloader shooter or hunter or have any experience with them, but their, their range would be pretty limited. We're talking traditional weapons again, um, iron sights, you know, 50, 70 yards, maybe max. Um, so you are talking about a, a very short effective range compared to, you know, a rifle or even a more modern muzzle loader. 
I know other states in the West have muzzleloader seasons. Um, is this legislation modeled off of any of those other states or does it resemble those in any way? You know, I'm not an expert on other states' muzzleloader seasons. I do know that the uh, the sponsor of the bill, Representative Hinkle, made it pretty clear that uh, Montana would be the exception um, when it came to not having a special muzzleloader season. Um, I think, you know, the the thing that um, always gets pushed back on with, with these longer or with these specialized seasons when they come up is that, um, okay, we'll, we'll talk about them, but that people don't want to compromise. Um, Montana's very, you know, objectively long and generous um, liberal seasons, um, both for archery and for, for firearms. So just so I understand it, the, the argument um, from opponents is that uh, we already have such a long um, general big game season plus the shoulder seasons in place that there's plenty of time for somebody who did want to hunt with uh, traditional weapons that they could do that type of hunting in those time frames. Yeah, that's correct. And and that is true that, um, you know, you could pick up your, your flintlock muzzleloader and hunt. If you started with shoulder seasons, you get to start August 15th and theoretically hunt until February 15th um, minus the, um, minus the archery season uh, for deer and elk. Great. Thanks, Tom. Uh, did either of those bills get voted on? Uh, not yet. Um, I think we'll see some movement on them here in, in the coming weeks. Some of these um, committees do have um, some pretty, li- their schedules are starting to lighten up a little bit. So that's usually when, when they take what's called executive action and decide whether to move or amend or, or to table these bills. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Holly, uh, last week, it appeared that a same-day voter registration bill was dead, uh, but that changed Wednesday. Uh, can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so this legislation, it would not allow Montanans right now. You can register to vote up to 8 p.m. on Election Day. It would get rid of that provision and bump back the deadline. It was voted down in the House State Administration Committee but when that vote happened, the chair, who's Representative Wendy McCamey, a Republican from Ulm, she made really clear that no bill is technically dead until basically the session ends. So it's kind of a hat tip that we would see what we did this week. And that's Tuesday morning, right off the bat, when this committee came in, they voted eight to, or sorry, they voted 10 to eight to revive the bill. That was with all Democrats and then two Republicans on the committee voting against reviving it. Do we know why it came back from the dead? Uh, there was a lawmaker in the committee hearing, Rep. Tyson Runningwolf, who made a reference to lawmakers getting taken into the backyard and had a whooping by the parties or whatever. Yeah, it was a pretty interesting reference that Runningwolf made. It didn't really expand on that much in the hearing. I found Representative Geraldine Custer, who's a Republican from Forsyth, after the vote, and I asked her, she's a Republican who hasn't shied away from the past, in the past from not voting in lockstep with the party. And she's also spent her whole career doing this kind of elections work. So this is an area she knows really well. And Custer told me that people didn't really bother to try to pressure her to change her vote. They knew she probably wasn't going to. But she did say that she thought the state Republican Party and then the Secretary of State's office probably push some of the legislators who did change their vote a little bit. This is legislation the Secretary of the State, Secretary of the State has said is their top, one of their top priorities this session. 
so we know that county elections clerks have said they like the bill uh, because it would let them focus more on running the vote on the day of the election. Uh, but we know there's opposition too, right? Uh, like we heard from Rep. Weatherwax, who called the bill voter suppression. What's the arguments for and against the bill? Yeah, so just I probably should make clear what this bill does now. It was amended this week. Before the amendment, it would have cut off voter registration the fi- Friday before the election. Elections are on Tuesdays in Montana, um, which everywhere. And it now cuts off voter registration at noon the Monday before the election. And there was typically a pause in registration from noon that Monday to the next day just to allow clerks time to like print out the voter rolls and all that. So that's where the bill stands now. And what we heard from people like Representative Weatherwax. And then I talked to uh, Keaton Sunchild, who does a lot of work with native vote turnout in Montana. They were saying that you know, in places like reservation communities, a lot of people are able to vote by getting rides to the polls and you know, reservation communities might have businesses that shut down on election day. So you can kind of do a one-stop shop. You can go in, you can register and you can vote all in one day. And that process would obviously look a lot different if you couldn't register and vote on the same day. So that's some of the frustrations we heard from people. Uh, is this perennial legislation or did this come about uh, just in in regards to the most recent uh, election cycle? You know, there's been attempts to change a lot of how Montanans vote every session. I think that there's been building frustration with elections administrators. Like you said, this last election cycle and in 2018, it was pretty dramatic too. You had lots of people registering to vote on election day. And when I talked to the Broadwater County, um, their elections administrator, and he was saying, you know, they had somebody show up like two minutes to the close of polls in the November election. That's just really hard. You know, he was saying to kind of manage somebody who needs help with registering, with kind of just managing people who are voting too. So definitely has been kind of a building problem as more and more Montanans. We've seen you know, record numbers of people voting in recent elections, so more pressure for sure. Uh, is there anything more you, you'd like to add about the bill? Um, I think we covered it. I'm really curious what the House is going to do with it, especially just you know it dying and then coming back would indicate that there's maybe not super broad support for it. So maybe the full House won't be as receptive. But it does sound like you know, Republicans have been talking with other Republicans about, you know, advocating for the bill. And I think Democrats have been doing some work to make sure people understand concerns of their constituents. Uh, Holly, the the budget process really gets going uh, next week. Can you tell us what you'll be looking at? Yeah, starting next week, all of these different subcommittees that have been really digging into like all facets of state agencies, all these little programs and just all these divisions, um, They've been doing a lot of work since the session started to understand budget proposals and all that stuff. And starting next week, they're going to start voting on the actual budgets for these agencies. And that really sets up the House Bill 2 process, which is the main state budget. Um, and that kind of becomes a major, major theme in the session kind of through the end here. So kicking that off soon and pretty exciting for the numbers people. All right, folks, uh, that's another episode of Big Sky Lead. Uh, If you want to keep hearing this, subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tom.